0: I'm really glad the AMI is producing this video so you can see how a big plant works when everything is operating correctly. I have worked all my career on improving how animals are handled, and one of my biggest frustrations is you go out there on the internet and there's all these terrible undercover videos and there's not much video of things being done right. Now one of the problems. Welcome to I mean, Science
1: Questions. This is Sherry Quinn. And, and I am Susie Montgomery. Issues, Temple Grandin thinks in pictures. A She's a professor of animal science at Colorado State University in Fort Collins, Colorado, and is well known for her inventive livestock handling designs. She used her notoriety to dispel the negative labels of autism that plagued her as a child and a young woman.
0: One of the things that really motivated me is I wanted to prove to the world I wasn't stupid.
1: Sherry first met Miss Grandin at her home in 2011 and interviewed her about her career and her moral beliefs that set her apart from other
2: scientists and big names. Here's a clip from that profile piece. I am literally on the edge of my seat on Temple Grandin's brown cowhide couch next to her. There are stacks of papers, books, and science and business journals scattered everywhere in her living room. In her modest two-story condo near the University of Colorado in Fort Collins, the walls are collaged with paintings and photographs of cattle, horses, and Western art, and tables are piled high with animal sculptures, stuffed animals, and knick-knacks, all gifts from her family, friends, and adoring fans from across the world.
0: I've been kind of following a lot of this stuff, science and nature. We're sitting here doing this interview, and i got so many science and natures on the couch that so there's no place to sit. Grandin is a
2: prolific writer and has written numerous popular books about animal behavior. She has published over 100 scientific and technical articles on livestock handling. Early on in her career, it was her mission to make slaughterhouses more humane. And she has become a world leader in the design of livestock handling facilities. Her curved chute system is used worldwide, and her writings on the principles of grazing animal behavior have helped many livestock producers reduce stress in cows and pigs during handling. Grandin's philosophy, the world is cruel, but we don't have to be, has caught on and even fast food corporations such as McDonald's, Wendy's, and Burger King have begun to implement her animal welfare guidelines at their slaughterhouses. Her close friend Rosalie Winard recalls the first time she visited a slaughterhouse with Grandin.
3: I was there to photograph, and I was allowed to photograph outside the actual slaughter itself because they never allowed that. And after we toured the whole plant and the stairway to heaven, Temple asked... If I wanted to go in to see the actual slaughter, because this is something that she's very, very proud of, because she really has created a painless slaughter for the animals, and we went inside, and there were actually there were two other women who were from the biosphere, and we witnessed it, and it was quick and painless and then we went outside back on the the ramp, and much to my amazement and and very touching. We got out on the ramp, and she said, could we have a minute of silence for the cows now? And it was just this unexpected, beautiful, touching moment, and it it is how Temple relates to the cows and all the animals she works with.
1: Ms. Grandin is currently traveling the country promoting her new book, The Autistic Brain, co-authored by Richard Panik. It is currently on the New York Review of Books bestseller list. Sherry talked to her on the phone about her new book right before she left for an autism meeting in Australia. Grannon first discussed the main difference between the autistic and the non-autistic brains, where the circuits involved with social relationships, like facial recognition, are abnormal.
0: Recognizing emotional expressions, those sorts of things, in the people that are fully verbal, that's one abnormality that seems to go across the spectrum. Now you get into other things like sensory problems, visual thinking, mathematical thinking, word thinking. Those things are highly, highly variable. But when you look at um, individuals on the autistic spectrum that are fully verbal, they tend to have uneven skills. They tend to be good at one thing and really bad at something else. And that's one of the things I talk about in the autistic brain.
2: The right side of Grandin's brain dominates. When she was 63, her brain was scanned and analyzed by a team of neuroimaging experts, including researchers from the University of Utah. One of the results revealed an abnormally large amygdala, a deep region of the brain that processes emotion.
0: Then you start looking at things like I've got asymmetry in the uh, fluid-filled ventricles. That kind of wrecked my math department. And then I've got a huge, my language circuit morphed into a huge visual circuit. Most other people don't have. You see, what's happening is the new technologies are coming in for scanning that were developed uh, for the Defense Department for head injuries and veterans. It's sort of like getting the Hubble Space Telescope, but nobody really knows how to use it yet. And some of those images that are in the autistic brain are sort of like, you know, the first little looks with the new technology. And what needs to be done is uh, looking at different types of autism and then seeing how these circuits are, are different. You know, the circuit in my brain for speak what you see had less bandwidth, and that may explain why I had problems with getting my speech out, getting my words out. I had difficulty with that.
2: Grandin, once terrified of public speaking, looks like a natural on stage. She overcame her fear with practice. Practice,
0: practice, practice, because when I was in graduate school, my very first talk, I panicked and I walked out. It's just practice, practice, just doing it. And then I'd read my evaluations carefully and... And um, I remember one time a student wrote on one of my evaluations, I always gave the same lecture, because even though I didn't always give the same lecture, I tended to start all my cattle lectures with the same slide on cattle vision. Well, I got rid of that slide, and then I started on mixing my slides around in different order, and that got rid of that problem. Can
2: you discuss why there are so many forms of autism on the spectrum?
0: Well, the problem is, is diagnosis is a behavioral profile. It is not precise, like going out and doing a lab test for tuberculosis. It's not a precise diagnosis. In fact, over the decades, the American Psychiatric Association has kept changing the diagnosis. And in the autistic brain, I have an entire chapter just on how the diagnosis has changed. You see, it's a a behavioral profile consisting of a cluster of symptoms. And it's very important that parents and teachers not get hung up on these diagnostic labels. You know, if your kid's labeled dyslexia, ADHD, you know, um, oppositional defiant, conduct disorder, you know, any one of these um, DSM labels, don't get hung up on it. They are not precise.
2: Autism diagnoses are on the rise. About 1 in 88 children has been diagnosed with an autism spectrum disorder and Utah has the highest rate in the country, according to estimates from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Grandin said some of the rise is attributable to increased detection back in 1980, because in order to be diagnosed with it, you had to have speech delay.
0: In other words, you had to have speech delay before 30 months of age. Then in the early 90s, they added Asperger's, which is basically the social awkwardness, you know, and there's no speech delay. So that's going to broaden it right there a whole lot. And then the new DSM is taking out the Asperger's, and they're going to rename that social communication disorder. And uh, I think this has to do with politics and, you know, making services. Grandin
2: added there is some upset about the new classifications among some individuals with Asperger's.
0: Half of Silicon Valley has got some Asperger's, but most of them are undiagnosed. The ones that are diagnosed kind of, you know, feel a camaraderie, and uh, there's a lot of concern about, you know, loss of services. See, part of the reason for using all these labels is you have to have them to get services. Like, if your child needs to get special ed in school, you've got to have a label. If you don't have a label, you're not going to get um, any services. What is the most exciting research these days? The research I think they need to do absolutely needs to be done. Be done. They've done a lot of research on the social circuits. We know how, the, how those don't work. And there's old fMRI, fMRI technology that could actually diagnose that. That's not even being used. But what needs to be worked on are the sensory problems, because you have some people that can't stand fluorescent lights, and they're not all diagnosed autistic either. Some of them are diagnosed with sensory processing problem. Some are diagnosed with dyslexia. Some are just diagnosed with learning problems. And uh, there's some individuals can't tolerate the flicker of fluorescent lights. It drives them absolutely crazy. Uh, others can't tolerate loud noises. I was at a meeting just yesterday. There was a little boy that had on those kind of headphones he wear out at the airport, you know, to protect from the jet blast because he um, just couldn't stand normal noise. And we need to find treatments for these sensory issues. But they're very, very variable. One kid may be bothered by smoke alarm or, you know, loud noises like that. Other kid doesn't bother him.
2: There is no single cause of autism, several culprits are suspected it is clear genetics influence the risk for developing autism. However, genetics does not account for all cases. Toxins in our environment, like prenatal exposure to the chemicals, thalidomide, and valproic acid has been linked to increased risk of autism. And new studies are providing evidence that in some cases, the development of autism stems from epigenetic sources. Problems in the control of gene expression in brain cells, for example.
0: There's also some research showing that low folic acid and taking folic acid, you know, right around, you know, conception can help reduce autism and other neurological problems. You know, we've got a diet in this country that's deficient in omega-3s, and, and there could be a number of things. The genetics is complicated. There's lots of little tiny code variations that in the genetics.
2: Do you think there could be an evolutionary advantage to autism?
0: My old forms, there's some advantages. I mean, who do you think made the first stone spear? It wasn't the, um, the yak-yaks around the campfire, that's for sure. You see, a little bit of these traits gives some advantage. You wouldn't want to totally get rid of these traits. Um, uh, you know, the people with, uh, you know, that are to take out some social circuits, then you see have more circuits for, like, figuring out stuff, like programming computers and doing art and things like that. And, and so a little bit of the trait gives some advantages. What are some technologies
2: that you think help autistics?
0: One thing I'm seeing too many kids doing is getting totally addicted to video games. They're not doing anything else. They're not working for the video game industry or learning programming. And any cognitive advantages you can get from video games, you're going to get 30 minutes to one hour a day, and that's the research shows. You know, I'm very concerned that there's too many smart, geeky kids out there that are not getting their abilities developed. I mean, when I was a young child, my ability in art was really, really encouraged. But I'm seeing too many cases where I see a smart kid that needs to be doing advanced math when he's in the third grade, and they won't let him do it. And that's just absolutely terrible. And then the kid gets bored and turns into a behavior problem. See, one of the problems you have is autism is such a big spectrum. You know, teachers have a hard time shifting gears from the half of the, of the population that remains nonverbal and very severely handicapped to a kid that's just socially awkward and maybe brilliant in math but may, may need special ed in reading or one like me that's hopeless in algebra. But really good with uh, art type of stuff and industrial design types of things. Another big concern I've got, is, especially with some of these milder autistic kids, they need to learn work skills. You know, like how to just get out there every day and do a job. And if there were paper routes still around, I'd put them on a paper route. You know, or, or they could walk dogs for people. My mother arranged a little sewing job for me that I did two afternoons a week.
2: Grandin was raised with a strong work ethic that helped her get through the onslaught of criticisms from her peers and adults for simply being herself.
0: When I was a young kid, I was labeled as mentally retarded, too. One of the things that really motivated me was I wanted to prove to the world I wasn't stupid. And I can remember when I got some of my really nice drawings done, I looked at these drawings and I go, well, I can't be too stupid and then draw a an and then see the project get built and have it work.
2: That determination continues in her livestock work today. Next, Grandin discusses her latest agricultural research.
0: We've been uh, working on a lot of different things. My student just worked on a project where we went out to feed yard and watched cattle um, going through the squeeze chute, and sometimes uh, you miscatch, you make a mistake, and catch the animal's head wrong in the squeeze chute, and you're working them. And that definitely, you know, is uh, causing some discomfort to the cattle. I mean, that's something you just would know. And I want to make it very clear, we did not deliberately uh, miscatch any cattle. We just watched, you know, hundreds and hundreds of cattle go through a squeeze chute, and sometimes they make a mistake and miscatch one of them. And we found if he did that, then we'd tend to moo more. I've done research where I developed vocalization scoring for use in slaughterhouses. And if you want to pass the McDonald's audits, you're only allowed to have three cattle out of 100 mooing when you're handling them. And if you've got more than three out of 100 mooing, then you've got problems. You know, and the mooing is associated with something aversive. And if you make a mistake when you're working the cattle, instead of catching them around the neck with the head gate, maybe get them across the jaw with it, you know, they're going to moo more. And my student just worked on quantifying that. And, and I went to a very good feed yard, and every once in a while they would happen to make a mistake. We recorded how the cattle behaved in that situation as compared to one was done absolutely right. And what it showed is you want to do it absolutely right as much as possible.
2: She said one of the biggest changes in the industry is in maintenance and management.
0: You know, a lot of slaughterhouses, you don't have to build a lot of new stuff to fix them. You've got to fix a lot of simple things like non-slip floor in the stun box, uh, get rid of reflections. Um, animals are afraid of a little, lot of little distractions that we tend to not see, like reflections on shiny metal, stuff like that, sunbeams, seeing people walk by. And if you get rid of the distractions, they'll walk right in. And then you also have got to have management that cares about doing things right. And I worked with McDonald's and other companies on implementing their animal welfare auditing. And then another program I worked on was uh, video auditing, where video cameras are used, where people over the Internet look in and see what's going on. Boy, 20 years ago, they were really awful. And things have improved a lot. You might want to look at my beef plant video tour with Temple Brandon, And I also have pork plants video tour with Temple Brandon, and you can see exactly how the things work when they're working right. Cattle are offloaded as calmly as possible to minimize excitement and prevent slips and falls. If an animal falls down, it can get bruised, it can get injured. Non-slip flooring is essential to prevent uh, slips and falls. How many slaughterhouses are taking on these new practices? Ironically, most of the big plants are doing it. So there was a while where the big plants actually were better. Now the small plants that are audited by, you know, companies like Whole Foods and things like that, they're doing a much better job. And there was a lot of problems where people just didn't know. The other thing is you've got to have management that cares about doing things right. And if you don't have management that cares about doing things right, you're, you're going to have bad stuff going on. And one of the things we learned is there were some managers that actually had to be removed. There were some people that had to be removed. And in the big corporations, that's actually easier to do than in some of the smaller places.
2: To understand the animals and learn what works best for them, Grandin spends time with them in the field.
0: You just sit down on the ground, they'll just come up to you. See, the thing is, new things are both frightening and attractive. They're frightening if you take them and just shove them in the animal's face. But if you just sit still and let the animal approach something new, both horses and cattle will come up to strange things. Like if you put a, you know, just park a car out in the middle of the pasture... All the animals will come up to it.
2: Animal behavior and the biology of their memory is mystifying. Just think of butterflies. Grandin is credited for providing insight to these mysteries. She says animals are very specific in how they remember things.
0: And in my book, Animals and Translation, I talk about you know visual fear memories. You know, as a horse in animals translation, he's terrified of black cowboy hats. White hats are fine, but black cowboy hats are bad. Because when an idiot threw alcohol in his eyes, he was looking right at a black hat. And then Betsy, my agent,'s got a little dog that's terrified of baseball hats. And if you got a baseball hat on, the dog's terrified of it. You see, because something bad happens to that dog when, uh, when someone was wearing a baseball hat. And that's what the dog was looking at when the bad thing happened. So they tend to get very sensory-specific fear memories, you know, where a A certain sound or a certain visual image is associated with something bad.
2: To some, Granny is considered a savant and a voice of reason. She offers thoughtful perspectives on an assortment of major issues, from politics and business to technology and education. Innovation in engineering gets her really excited. And she says getting children with autism interested in specialized projects can be a key to their success.
0: Well, I think 3D printing is really super exciting. And that's a great thing to get kids that are technically inclined involved with having them draw stuff and then make it on 3-D printers. And they're coming down in price, where you can actually get a 3-D printer kit now for about $700. And, you know, we need to be getting a lot of these kids that are kind of different into things like maker community groups and hackerspace where they get to do cool stuff with things like 3-D printers. Because the only places where I was not teased was – was when I was doing specialized interests, horseback riding and electronics. And we need to be, you know, these kids that are kind of different. I don't care what their label is. We need to get them involved with things where they can excel uh, and, and where they have shared interests with their peers. I mean, it could be the school play, the school newspaper, band, music, art, computer programming. It could be a lot of different things. You know, you've got to dream. You know, when we were all kids, we worshipped the astronauts and the astronauts. You know, back when I was was a child, uh, you know, the astronauts were our heroes because they were doing, you know, exciting exploration.
2: She says schools are not doing enough to foster children's specialized talents. And an example in Utah sticks out.
0: I've heard really stupid things. When I was in Utah, I heard something really dumb where there was a really smart boy who was brilliant in math and he was one credit off and couldn't get an advanced placement because he had to take a special ed course in reading. And to not let them take advanced placement science and math is just bureaucratic stupidity. And that happened last year in Utah.
2: Helping others and seeing real results are major motivating factors for Grandin to work so hard.
0: Kids come up to me telling me that I've really motivated them to succeed. You know, I have a parent tell me that kid went to college because of my book. Or a rancher tells me the corral system worked well. That's the sort of things that motivate me. We've got to make real positive change happen in the world. You know, and also I'm not abstract. What can we do to do sensible, real stuff that's going to work? And I'm seeing too many smart kids that are kind of quirky and different and they get labeled, and um, they, they sort of almost become their handicap. I mean, autism is an important part of who I am, but it's secondary to a lot of my other work. And I think it's difficult lots of times for teachers to shift gears between a smart science nerd and I'm seeing them getting held back and not allowed to do the advanced math they should be doing. And, and then you've got another population that's much more handicapped and nonverbal, and they're all called autism. See, they're all called the same thing. You know, people being language-based sort of get locked into this. And I, I just see the kid. Parents say, well, what's the most important thing you can do for autism? Well, if he's three and he's not talking, it's tons and tons of early intervention, one-to-one teaching. That's the same for everybody. But let's say you've got a 10-year-old who's getting bullied in school. You know, I ask, well, what's he good at doing? You know, is, is, he, is he just working at grade level and everything? Is he really excel in one subject? You know, I've got to ask a lot of questions to find out stuff about him. People tend to oversimplify and we'll put all the autism in one basket. Well, that just doesn't work, you know, the, once they get past the age of two or three or four. It just, it just doesn't work. And, I'm, you know, I was just at a meeting last night and it was a smart little third grader. And they're making him do baby math over and over and over again. And I said, that is worse wrong. Get the fourth grade math book and let him do it. Get him the fifth grade math book. Math's a subject where you just let him go ahead. Now, he's probably, I wouldn't recommend that for literature, but math's a subject where you can just let them go ahead. He wants to do college math on a laptop in the third grade classroom. Fine, let him do it. You know, too many of these kids, they aren't learning basic skills like shopping. How do you walk up to somebody at McDonald's and order a hamburger? Work skills. They aren't learning those things. And and then my science teacher was a very important mentor in high school because I didn't do much studying when I was in high school. I learned a lot of work skills. But uh, he got me interested in science. And, you know, we need to be – there's a lot of retirees around that are probably bored, and maybe they could introduce a a kid to auto mechanics or art or or even – Programming, it doesn't matter if it's ancient history, because what you're doing is you're turning the spark on. You're getting the spark turned on. You're getting the kid motivated. But if the kids aren't exposed to these things, they're not going to get interested in 3D printers if they don't know about them. The kids have got to find out that this stuff even exists.
2: Exposure and hands-on experience can make the difference, according to Grandin.
0: The government's gotten too abstract. I'm a bipartisan trasher of this you're getting everything to become an abstraction. And I think a lot of this gets back to taking out the hands-on classes. You got people making policy. They get through college, they get a degree in poli-sci, then they go internship for a congressman, then they work in DC and they've never been out in the field finding out what happens out in the field with whatever thing they're politicking about. We've got to get back to doing what I call real stuff.
2: Grandin is considered a leading voice in animal behavior and the humane slaughter of livestock. Her dedication to the science of autism and our societal views of it have changed and influenced many lives. She's always on the move across the country, giving talks, signing books, doing research, writing articles and books, mentoring colleagues, parents, youth, and students. She's busy. It seems one of the only times she gets to relax is when she is flying on an airplane like one of her many heroes, the astronauts. She can sit back and watch.
0: I get to see quite a few movies on airplanes. Uh, When I can't sleep on a plane, I'll sometimes watch three movies. Well, I just saw the new Star Trek movie, and of course I always relate to Mr. Spock, because he's very logical. And I like the way he was depicted in the new Star Trek movie. Very, very good to talk to you.
3: On the next On Being. I had this tremendous fear that I would be discovered. And I now realize that that fear was actually a deep wish. I really wished somebody would actually see me because I'd never been seen.
1: Joy laden on the practical, moral, and spiritual aspects of gender transition and of living as a woman for the first time in midlife. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us.
4: Sunday night at 8 on Utah Public Radio.
1: This week in This American Life, Michael and Joan fell for each other. He was in prison. She was not. And as long as he was in prison, things were great, romantic even. They wrote love letters. They missed each other. And then he got out. And as you'd expect, it got a lot more complicated. What happened next? This week.
4: Sunday afternoon at 2 on Utah Public Radio. Here's what's coming up on Access Utah on Monday. In his early 20s, Benjamin Franklin embarked on what he called a bold and arduous project of arriving at moral perfection. He intended to master a list of 13 virtues. He certainly gave up on perfection, but continued to believe these these attributes, along with a generous heart and a bemused acceptance of human frailty, laid the foundation for both a good life and a workable society. Well, writer and visual artist Teresa Jordan wondered if Franklin's uh, notions of virtue might offer guidance to a nation increasingly divided by angry righteousness. She decided to try to live this list for a year, focusing on each virtue for a week at a time, and taking weekends off to attend to the seven deadly sins. The result of is an interesting book, The Year of Living Virtuously, Weekends Off. Teresa Jordan is my guest on Monday's Access Utah. And on Wednesday, we're going to be taking a look at doing good in your community. We'll have spotlight a few organizations and uh, give you a chance to spotlight a good organization in your community. And on Thursday, it's the Access Utah Holiday Special. We'll have guitarist extraordinaire uh, Mike Christiansen with us, providing some great holiday music, and uh, the wonderful writer and playwright uh, Tim Slover will be with us as well. That's what's coming up for you next week on Access Utah. Hope you'll be with us.